This is the English Heritage Podcast. Hello and welcome to your weekly podcast into England's past. I'm Charles Rowe. Now this week we're marking a slightly unusual milestone in the long history of Stonehenge because this year marks a hundred years since the closure of the Stonehenge Aerodrome. Of course, there's no obvious trace of this when you visit the famous stones today, but in the early 20th century, just a few hundred yards from the monument's southern edge, was a large First World War aviation training complex. And joining us to explain more are Stonehenge's senior property curator, Heather Sabir, and Martin Barber from Historic England's Aerial Investigation and Mapping Department. Hello to you both. Hello. Hello. Martin, can we start off with you? Can you tell us when the aerodrome was first established and why? Because most people might not have even known about it. Indeed. And funnily enough, it sounds a very straightforward question, but it's not an easy one to answer. One of the interesting things about the aerodrome is, and about other aerodromes from the First World War, is that the surviving archives are actually quite fragmentary. There are lots of gaps, and although research continues, I suspect there'll be some things that we, we will never be able to answer. It was one of a number of aerodromes that were established across southern England from mid-1917 onwards as part of this a massive expansion in capacity, a tremendous increase in the number of planes, especially bombers. And of course, the infrastructure that was needed to facilitate that, including training. Training at Stonehenge was mainly but not exclusively focused on bombers, these massive Handley Page bombers that were designed to carry their bombs all the way to Germany. In terms of when it actually opened, very difficult to pinpoint. Officially, it opened in November 1917, but the first planes actually arrived in mid-October. 107 squadron of the Royal Flying Corps and they moved on after a few weeks. There were no hangars or any permanent structures at all on site until the end of December. We have an account by a second lieutenant F.S. Briggs who on his first day says arrived at Stonehenge today with a corporal and six men. What a bleak hole the aerodrome (laughs) is. The aerodrome is just a bit of open plain, no hangars, no nothing. Then they were sent these hangars in kit form, wood and canvas temporary structures, at which they, they would put one up and the next day it would blow down again. But eventually, by the 17th of December, he says they managed to get some to stay up. And he says hangars are now going up like the price of wine. But the aerodrome doesn't really get going as a functioning training base until January 1918, when it's designated the number one school of aerial navigation and bomb dropping. And this is when the serious planes start arriving and things get into full swing. Yes, of course. And this is obviously in the early days of flight, isn't it? Just give us a bit of context in terms of when the Wright brothers first flew and then when the first British flying men in their new flying machines were taking to the air. Indeed, so uh, Stonehenge Aerodrome is opening just, what, 13, 14 years after the Wright Brothers' first flight and just nine years after the first successful flight in Britain, Mm. um, which took place in October 1908. And obviously the Royal Flying Corps itself, a branch of the armed services that could actually fly, is only, what, five or six years old at this stage. So really new technology at this stage. Indeed, yes. Yes. But it was soon to expand. And where exactly was this aerodrome in relation to Stonehenge? We did just mention in the introduction that it was just a few hundred yards, but can you give us some facts and figures? It is to the to the west of Stonehenge. I guess this is possibly the point where people listening to the podcast can just press the pause button and open up Google Earth or something yes. like that, just, just to help 
and visualize it. But basically, if, if you think in terms of a, a large triangle lying on its side with its sort of the, the pointy bit to the east and the flat bit to the west, the northwestern side is marked by the road that became the A344 at the time. It was the Amesbury to Shruton Road and is now close to traffic. It's the road that you go along to travel along from Visitor Centre to Stonehenge. The southwestern side is formed by what is now the A303. And at the far end is the, the north-south A360, which is the Devizes Salisbury Road. So Stonehenge is very much at the eastern end of this triangular area. Right, OK. But still fairly near to um, what was due to get built, obviously, over time. Indeed, although originally the aerodrome, as envisaged, was this sort of large open area for planes to take off and land, and the buildings were actually going to be pretty much as, as far away as, as you could get within that triangle of land from Stonehenge. They were far up the, the A344 to the, the northwest, tucked behind a belt of trees called Fargo Plantation. It didn't end up like that, though, did it? Because if we go onto the English Heritage website and search Stonehenge Aerodrome, you can see a black and white image of an aerial view and you look down and you see the faint outline of the stone circle then you see this massive sort of conurbation either side of the main road really dominating the scene there so um how big did it get well yeah i mean everything changed once it was designated this um number one training base for for aerial navigation and bomb dropping and you get the heavy bombers arriving and the aerodrome is sort of focusing on training for both day bombing and night bombing there was a perceived need to have um, separate bases for the nighttime flyers and the daytime flyers. So this led to the expansion of the aerodrome so that a new set of technical buildings, hangars and domestic accommodation were built to the south, either side of what is now the A303, so much closer to Stonehenge than originally envisaged. Yeah, of course, to modern ears and the way that we deal with archaeology these days and the way that we value heritage has completely changed. We talked about heritage values in a previous podcast, but having an aerodrome so near such an important historic site, that would be sort of almost sacrilege today. Why was this location chosen? This is again is one of these difficult ones initially to answer because we don't have any documents from the early days. There is no document so far where somebody says we are building an aerodrome at Stonehenge for these reasons. The reasons actually emerge after the war when you get this debate about whether the aerodrome should actually become a permanent base and people are obviously protesting about that. And the reasons that are given then are, first of all, the presence of a fairly large area of relatively level open ground, which is precisely what you have in that large triangle that I just described. Mm. And secondly, the, the, the presence of uh, an access road, which obviously initially was the reference to the A344, the amesbury Shruton Road, which, which allowed traffic to come up from Amesbury and Salisbury right up to the aerodrome base itself. And thirdly, of course, the, the existence of military camps in the vicinity already. So there was an existing military infrastructure which the Stonehenge Aerodrome could attach itself to. And of course, it's part of Salisbury Plain, which is a military training exercise area. Absolutely, um, it's right at the southern edge of it. Yes. yes, indeed. So there's that conflict I can see already that you know between uh, historic and heritage versus uh, military need. You mentioned some of the road access there. We have the A303 nearby today. That road existed in a previous form, did it, during the 1910s and into that period? I'm going way back. Yes, it, essentially it's one stretch of a series of roads that linked together formed the, the main route from London to Exeter. So the military had um, plenty of decent access. 
Can you tell us also where the landing spots were? Was there an actual tarmac airstrip? No, no. Runways didn't exist at aerodromes until much, much later. Essentially, in the First World War, what you had was an open area of grassland, which the planes would take off and land from, direction largely dependent on things like the direction of the prevailing wind. What you'll quite often see, and we do see on some of the surviving aerial photographs of Stonehenge, is a, a circle marked out on the grass, which is a sort of landing target. A flare would be lit in the centre of it, so you could see which direction the wind was blowing, that sort of thing. But mm. also we, we see references from some of the pilots who trained there, that uh, particularly with night flying, that you would get a, a, an L-shaped arrangement of flares laid out on the ground, which would guide you to where you, you needed to land. There's no clearly demarcated landing and takeoff point as such. Let's get a few more f- quick facts and figures then. So the size of the sites would be roughly what by the heyday of this uh, aerodrome? It continued to grow after the war, mm. so it's very difficult to sort of pinpoint. But it, in terms of area, around 360 acres in total, about 30 of which contained buildings by the end of the First World War. And in terms of sort of length breadth at its maximum, it measured about one and a half kilometres north-south by two kilometres east-west. So, a, you know, a pretty sizable chunk of ground. It's almost like a village, really, on the map. Indeed. I mean, about 1,600 people, a minimum, on site when it was at maximum capacity. So how many buildings for these 1,600 people were there? (laughs) This is a difficult question to answer. We have one official survey prepared for the RAF in September 1918, and this is highly problematic because it doesn't refer to any structures that were regarded as temporary. And some fairly substantial buildings clearly were regarded as temporary and not mentioned. So, for instance, that original site behind Fargo Plantation, which I mentioned, had offices and accommodation blocks and so on. But this survey doesn't mention any of them because they were all regarded as temporary structures. So the minimum number of buildings that um, stood and were regarded as permanent in in September 1918 was around 80 in practice, there were, may have been twice that number from, mm. you know, latrines and technical and domestic structures right the way up to the, the massive hangars. It's amazing to bear that in mind, all those facts and figures, really, because, of course, what we have today is now nothing. It's just returned to pasture. In some respects, you would never even know that it was there as a tourist visiting Stonehenge today. It's remarkable, really, mm. how history can sort of be erased in that way. What, what are your thoughts on that, Heather? It is quite amazing. And listening to Martin talking, you know, it's, it's hard for us to imagine today the enormity of it in, well, just in terms of the buildings and everything. When Stonehenge, its setting is very much an open landscape apart from the roads. And uh, it's very hard to imagine there was that amount of activity. I mean, there is still flying activity today, of course, because we have the MOD to the north of Stonehenge at Lark Hill. And they very often fly, uh, well, of course, today it's helicopters. Yeah, the Chinooks. Slightly to the north of the visitor mm. centre. Rumour has it they like flying along the length of the Cursus Monument, which is just to the north of Stonehenge. Because okay. it gives them a, a sort of guidance. But it's it, very difficult to imagine all those buildings. Although the site of Stonehenge itself is quite interesting because it's amazing what you can see and what you can't see because of the sort of glacial landscape, you know, and a lot of, so for example, the visitor centre was built in a sort of glacial valley, so it's not visible from everywhere. Mm. So 
they might not have had as much impact as, as we think if you were at the Stones themselves. But I, I suspect in those days, the priority was, you know, particularly during the First World War, their thoughts were on survival and teaching people to fly rather than worrying about Stonehenge. Absolutely. I suppose when you're in peacetime, you can have all these nice cultural things and um, return the monument to its sort of original, quiet, dignified landscape. But when a war's on, I suppose needs must. Military flight, of course, was in its infancy, as we've covered at this stage. Do we know what aerial exercises took place during the First World War on site? We do. There is, in fact, quite a lot of information on this for some reason. We actually have a fairly detailed syllabus surviving. There's a document in the National Archives at Kew, which uh, actually covers the teaching for a week in, I think it's April 1918. So it's the, as I said, the number one school of aerial navigation and bomb dropping. They eventually dropped the word aerial from the title because I think it was blindingly obvious yeah. <laughs> that's what they did. But it was described officially as a finishing school for pilots and observers in both day and night bombing. And that, that finishing school part is, is, is important because this isn't teaching people who had never flown before. This is teaching pilots and observers who have already gone through their basic training and in some cases have often seen some real experience on the Western Front. Mm. And um, they would attend a course that lasted four to five weeks. The subjects varied according to whether they were training to be a day bomber pilot, a night bomber pilot or an observer. But um, yeah, we've got lists of things like you know aerial navigation with and without maps and compasses, flying in cloud cover, learning how to operate the bomb gears, how to drop bombs and so on, aerial firing in formation. The nighttime bomber pilots would be learning to, to fly by searchlight and without searchlight, obviously, as well. One of the interesting things is obviously this isn't all classroom stuff. They're actually going up in the air and, and trying these things is the various tests for flying across country without a maps or compass. So one of the tests was actually called the head in the bag test. Right. Which was designed sounds dangerous. To test a, it sounds horrific. Designed to test a pilot's ability to fly in a straight line on a particular compass bearing. So once he had got himself set on the line of flight, as it says in the syllabus, pilot's head to be enclosed in a bag for not less than nine minutes on each course. Observer to hand in a fair copy of graph showing pilot's course. Pilot must not deviate more than 15 degrees off his course at any one time. Wow. But it's worth bearing in mind the kind of plane that this was being done in. These, these Handley Page bombers were among the largest planes in existence at the time. They had a wingspan of 100 feet, 30 meters, which is the same as the diameter of the outer circle at Stonehenge. And they were actually taller than the tallest stone at Stonehenge as well. So these are big things That's being, flown, being flown for nine minutes at a time with the pilot's head in a bag. Yeah. And biplanes, I suppose, with the dual wings. I'm Indeed, guessing. yes. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That, that image from that era. But despite all the training that was going on, some of it sounding slightly unorthodox to our modern ears, <laughs> were there any accidents that were documented? Yes, indeed there were. And yes, obviously the training was absolutely crucial. And we all know the images of the, the Second World War flying in the Battle of uh, Britain and all the rest of it. But these were really were the pioneers, weren't they? And their planes probably weren't as sophisticated. There was one trainee, RNAS pilot Leslie Semple, who witnessed at Stonehenge in June 1918. Today, about 2 p.m., saw a fellow spin into the ground on a DH-9, called up the ambulance, and with another fellow, ran with a fire extinguisher. On arrival, found the pilot lying in a terrible condition and still conscious. He was in terrible pain and asked to die. 
gave address of his people, etc., etc., and he died about 4 p.m. So very poignant to think that, uh, you know, even though this was training, there were still accidents happening. Of course. Uh, Martin, do you have any other stories from the records? I don't know. I mean, the, the Leslie Sample one is, is, is probably one of the best documented ones. There are other memorials in the landscape that relate to flying accidents before the aerodrome. But also, obviously, the local cemeteries are the obvious places that sort of bear witness to the fact that there were accidents because there are a number of graves of pilots and other airmen who died oh, right. whilst based at Stonehenge. Durrington Cemetery, for instance, which I think is the closest to the aerodrome site, has, has a number of, of graves of servicemen in there. That's really interesting how that they were actually buried nearby and not necessarily taken back to necessarily where they're from. I, I don't know. Yeah, yeah I think I one of them's Canadian. Yes, so right. Yeah. Heather, you going to say? Of course, the of course the site of the where the new visitor centre was built is is actually called Airman's Cross because there was a memorial at the roundabout before the visitor centre was built, and in fact the visitor centre was built on the western edge of the World Heritage Site in an area where there was not very much known archaeology. But one of the things that was known about that it was a possible crash site of a Captain Lorraine and Staff Sergeant Wilson, who were killed in a flying accident close to Stonehenge in 1912, so obviously just before the First World War broke out. And I know lots of local enthusiasts are fairly sure they know that they pinpointed where the crash took place, but geophysical survey of the area in front of the visitor centre didn't actually find any of the debris, so I don't know if this is correct, Martin, but there was a thought that the components of the actual aircraft could have been taken away. That's what I would expect. Anything that could be salvaged or reused would, would be removed, yeah. Yes. How significant a site was the Stonehenge Aerodrome then for the war effort in the First World War? Sounds like it was pretty important. Yeah, I mean, in terms of this this sort of massive increase in, in capacity, it's obviously a key training station that allowed that sort of taking the war into Germany, if you like, embarking on these bombing raids and so on. And they were sort of trying to get through 60 pilots and 60 observers a month. So if you think that uh, it began operating as this training base in January, so and the war ending in November, so that's 60 pilots and 60 observers a month for 11 months. So that's a fair number of, of crew who probably went on to, to take part in those raids. So we have established then that it was a pretty important site in terms of training up pilots to go and fight the aerial battles and drop bombs on the Western Front. More generally, though, how important was the aerodrome for aviation just generally in the history of aviation? Its significance by itself is probably not that great. Its significance comes from being part of that that expansion in training facilities. It's, it's part of a network of aerodromes dotted across Salisbury Plain and, and, and elsewhere across the south of England. There is another poignant connection, actually, with the First World War, in that the triangular field that Martin described that Stonehenge actually sits in was part of the Antropus estate at the time. In fact, Sir Edmund Antrobus lost his son in the early part of the First World War, and that's what caused the estate to be broken up. And the field that Stonehenge actually sits in came up at auction and was bought by a man called Cecil Chubb. We're fairly sure he's nothing to do with Chubb locks, um, <laughs> but anyway, he bought it. And he had an American wife whose family had property in Salisbury. And in fact, he then, three years later, in 1918, decided to donate Stonehenge to the nation. So that was quite significant, obviously, in the history of Stonehenge as well. 
Yes, an important sort of dot in the sort of dot connecting exercise of, of Stonehenge and its story. Heather, there's something that I'd like to ask you, actually. Is there any truth to the rumour that the monument was used as target practice? I mean, it's a horrible <laughs> thought, but... Yes, we get asked that quite a lot. I suspect it's an old wives' tale. I would like to think it was. Apart from anything else, where they were taking off from is so close by. I can't imagine they would have envisaged ever dropping anything that soon after they were off the ground. I mean, Stonehenge has had a lot of wear and tear over the centuries, but there's no direct evidence that it was ever hit by shrapnel or, goodness me, a bomb of any sort, as far as I'm aware. I don't know, Martin, if you know anything different. But, um, no, I've not come across anything, anything reliable, anyway. <laughs> no, indeed. Okay. <laughs> yes. But Martin, I also gather there's a story that suggests that the military wanted the stones demolished because they were a danger to aircraft. Is there any truth in that claim? Yeah, this is another one of those stories that, uh, as, as Heather says, you can file under old wives' tale. I, don't think, but, um, <laughs> I mean, the short answer is no, but in the sense that there's no evidence forthcoming at all to suggest that a request was ever made. But at the same time, it's possible to point to various events that might have given rise to the story. It's an incredibly persistent myth. When I started researching the history of the aerodrome 12, 13 years ago, and started giving talks or telling people what I was doing, somebody would always bring this story up. You know, somebody would always say, did you know? I hadn't <clears throat> appreciated until then how seriously some people took it. So I did actually started looking to see what I could find. I mean, there's the obvious problem. How do you prove something never happened? Because, you know, even, even the most dedicated civil servant doesn't set time aside each day to sit down and list all the things that haven't happened that day. Yeah. But the thing to bear in mind is that as soon as the military started training exercises on Salisbury Plain, which is an area full of archaeological monuments, they were directly under scrutiny from local archaeologists and antiquarians, the main archaeological societies, and of course the Office of Works, which mm. housed the Inspectors of Ancient Monuments. And this was all done with agreement with the military, who didn't want to cause any damage unless it was completely avoidable as well. And also after the First World War, there was this intense debate about whether the aerodrome would stay, and there was a lot of opposition to it staying, and they were looking as part of the evidence for any infringement by the military intentional or otherwise on archaeological sites so if the suggestion had been put forward you know somebody would have mentioned it at this stage and nobody did but of course the story doesn't actually appear in print until 1956 mm. a long time after the first world war ended but in terms of what might have inspired the story one of the possibilities is the demolition of uh, what were called stonehenge cottages when the aerodrome buildings beside the A303 were built, it wasn't just open pasture land. There were actually farm buildings there, right. which had been built in the mid-19th century, originally called Fargo Cottages. By the early 20th century, they were occupied by the custodian of Stonehenge, employed by the landowner, and they had been renamed Stonehenge Cottages. And when those new aerodrome buildings were built in 1918, they were actually right next to the hangars. There are actually some aerial photographs that show the building, the farm buildings right next to the hangar. So Stonehenge cottages were in the way of flying and were demolished. Right. Um, so there's possibly a sort of garbled memory of that. But also slightly later we get protests in the 1920s about the inadequacies of some of the ancient monuments and other legislation more widely. 
particularly the fact that government departments and the military were actually exempt from quite a lot of this legislation. And you do actually get people writing letters to the Times and other places saying things like, if the military wanted to knock Stonehenge down, there would be nothing to stop them. So there are a lot of things that potentially fed into this story. There is no truth in the rumour itself. Nobody ever asked for Stonehenge to be knocked down. Very interesting to see how those points are sort of related to this story and perhaps they were the seed for this claim to come about. Indeed, it's sort of identifying how these stories actually emerged and following them through time is, is quite interesting in itself, yes. Yes. What happened to the site after the First World War then and what temporary uses did the aerodrome have? Well, I mean, much to everyone's horror, initially the RAF wanted Stonehenge to become a permanent aerodrome. There had obviously been a lot of investment in, in technical buildings, in building work at the site during 1918. Most of those buildings, either side of the A303, were sort of state-of-the-art, brand-new technical buildings and so on. So once it was announced in, I think it was late 1919, that the Air Force wanted to make it permanent, objections started to come in straight away from the Office of Works, from the Society of Antiquaries and other archaeological organisations and from members of the public. This is the first time we start to see public objections simply to the presence of the buildings in, as a disfiguring element in the landscape. And by the end of 1921, the Air Ministry and the RAF relented, decided that they would close Stonehenge Aerodrome and RAF Old Serum was reprieved uh, in its place. But what happened next is, is incredibly complicated. But essentially, the normal process was set in motion, which is the aerodrome is closed, the buildings are to be auctioned off on condition that the purchasers remove them within three months. <laughs> so this was essentially a sale of the reusable and recyclable elements of the aerodrome structures. And once all those buildings had gone, the Air Ministry would be responsible for returning the site to its pre-war condition, so grass, pasture, and would then hand it back to the landowner from whom it had been requisitioned in the first place. And by this time, it um, belonged to a farmer called Isaac Crook, uh, a local landowner. And the last sale took place in February 1922, and Isaac Crook himself actually bought a large number of the buildings and seems to have carried on buying them after the auction off people who had successfully bid for them. And then he pulled a fast one, basically. He told the Air Ministry that if they handed the site back to him, he would take care of the removal of the buildings and they didn't need to give him any money. He would take care of it himself, etc. And the Air Ministry fell for it. They signed the land back over to him. And at that point, the government's own legal advice was that the decision to return the site to Isaac Crook and to waive responsibility for any reinstatement was effectively acquiescence on the government's part to the buildings remaining in situ. Ah. And Crook obviously had plans for them. So by 1924, at least one of the hangars is the focus for a pedigree pig breeding farm. Ah. Uh, and some of the other buildings on that northern side of the A303 also seem to have been used for similar purposes. Not all pigs seem to have been a range of animals. While south of the road where you had the accommodation blocks, he started renting some of those out as housing. So people were actually living in them. Very crafty. Who, indeed. Well, it's quite interesting because the people opposed to the building staying were describing these people as vagrants and mm. as undesirables, camp followers and worse. But when the district valuer was sent down 
at the request of the Office of Works, who were looking into the possibility of buying the site off Isaac Crook. He actually reported that the buildings were occupied by soldiers and their families and people who worked in the various military camps and said the rents were actually quite high. So it was quite a sound investment as far as Isaac Crook was concerned. It's just a it's a really interesting story that. I mean, um, was Isaac Crook just taking advantage of a loophole here? To a certain extent, yes. I think he saw that there was potential in using those buildings for farming purposes and also to rent out. One of the other interesting possibilities is, of course, that this was something that was raised within the government when they realised what had happened. The fact that even if they went to court and tried to get him to pull the buildings down, there was nothing within existing planning legislation to stop him from replacing them. And it was this sort of slight paranoia that he might develop the site that actually led to a public appeal to raise funds to buy the land off him, not just the land that the buildings were on, but the surrounding land as well. That appeal started in 1927. The money was raised by 1929. So all that land was bought off him and the land was given to the National Trust. So setting in motion the sort of the pattern of land ownership and stewardship we see today. And I think as far as the Office of Works were concerned, Crook did quite well financially out of the appeal as well. I think he, he got more per acre than he would have done otherwise. What a remarkable story. Uh, Heather, did you know all this stuff before you started in your job at Stonehenge? Well, yes, a bit of it, and because some of it ties into that auction I was talking about. I think I, I think it was the same crook that actually bid at the auction, but he was outbid. No, or, uh, yes, no, he was outbid, I'm fairly sure, by Cecil Chubb. Otherwise, he would have had the triangular field that Stonehenge sits in as well. But at least it ended up with the National Trust, who have looked after it ever since, really, and surrounding areas of Stonehenge. It's amazing how the evolution of the land ownership has led to what we have today. Yes, and I think we're in a better position for it as well. How were the buildings removed, and over what sort of time period? Well, longer than intended is the short answer. (laughs) I think the aerodrome site itself, that straddling the the A303 the money for that had already this is the government pulling a fast one actually the money had already been raised before the public appeal was announced but the public weren't told that the money had been raised because they were worried that people wouldn't then come forward with the money to allow them to buy the rest of the land but the buildings took some time one of the problems was that Isaac Crook had actually already sold one of the hangars to someone else as well so that needed to be dealt with goodness um (laughs) Some of the hangars also proved quite difficult to remove. They ended up having to resort to to dynamite. But a a devices-based firm called Chivers were actually engaged to take care of things. And what they did was they dismantled the remaining buildings. Reusable or recycled materials were sold off. People could drive out to the site, buy what they wanted and take it away. We've actually got a couple of aerial photographs from the late 1920s where you can see the dismantling process going on and you can see piles of material dotted around the site. The last hangar, I think, was gone by the end of the 1920s but some of the accommodation blocks south of the road lingered into the 1930s because there was a obviously a need to rehouse some of the people who were living in them first before they could be demolished. Yeah and that uh, building company Martin that you mentioned too would be doing some of the uh, demolishing you said they were based in the nearby town of Devizes was that quite far away or? No, it's, it's just a short distance to the, the, the northwest, about 50 miles or so. Uh, but they were a private contractor who did a lot of work on Salisbury Plain for the military. So mm. they were quite experienced in, in, in working with these kind of things. So roughly speaking, how long did it take for the whole site to kind of be taken away? 
the last buildings, as I said, disappeared in the, the mid-1930s. And then the site where the aerodrome buildings themselves were reverted to pasture. But obviously there's a fair amount of debris still under the ground there. You can see it on, on aerial photographs throughout the 30s, 40s and 50s as it's gradually disappearing under the grass and then some of it is taken into arable. But um, recent geophysical survey has demonstrated there's still quite a lot of rubble and some metallic debris there. Yes, and a few years back I believe we had quite a hot summer and of course all these amazing archaeological finds were sort of emerging through this uh, parched grass from aerial photographs which was fantastic and um, you can see that in the parched fields during hot summers even today. What did the construction and deconstruction of the Stonehenge aerodrome do to change the way we think about ancient monuments do you think? What's the lesson of this? Well, I mean, there are two aspects here. There's, I'll talk about the first one, which is the significance at the time, and which was that the presence of the aerodrome was the first time people really started thinking about the setting of Stonehenge. It was the focus of arguments about what was and what wasn't an acceptable modern intrusion into that landscape, because there's this perception that Stonehenge should be relatively isolated within an area of grassland and so on. So the aerodrome was clearly not acceptable. But also it got people thinking as well about the fact that you had something like a monument like Stonehenge, which has survived above ground for millennia. And then alongside it, you had something like uh, this First World War aerodrome, which is supposed to be sort of of epitome of modern technology coming and going within a matter of years. Heather, what are your thoughts about uh, the sort of change in the value given to the monument? Uh, We we talked about the heritage values in a previous podcast, and there are lots of different criteria do you think perhaps you? Stonehenge Aerodrome changed our heritage, the charity's heritage values at this point? It is quite interesting because I suspect if the buildings had survived today, they would have been given heritage value as other World War One and World War Two things have been and buildings and aerodromes and what have you. I mean, in some ways, I have to be honest, I'm quite pleased that they were taken away in that it does help to restore Stonehenge to something of what we think I mean, we can never put it back to its original setting, but we can give more of an indication of the landscape without modern buildings being too close by. But it is very much part of uh, Stonehenge's story, I think, you know, because Stonehenge very much has a history as well as a prehistory. You know, the history of what happened since the Bronze Age is is quite interesting as well as the prehistory. And many of our visitors are very, very interested in military history. And because we sit so close also to the present day Ministry of Defence and their huge site at Lark Hill, and we think of them as as neighbours and um, very much engage with them and they engage with us as well, which is great today. The story is great, but uh, in some ways I'm glad the physical has gone. There is one physical remainder, unfortunately, which does cause us a few headaches from time to time, and that is that, as Martin says, there, there are traces under the ground and sometimes bits of what would be classed as asbestos today does come to the surface. It's uh, the old sort of crinkly building material they use for roofs and what have you, mm. and uh, we do have to deal with that from time to time from a health and safety point of view. Yes, but of I think that certainly the story about the military flying and, you know, there are still people today who are related to people who were there and flying and what have you. And it still has great interest. So it certainly has heritage value. Yes, and certainly um, relatively recent history, just 100 years ago, really. What are the aerodrome's other legacies, if there are any? 
Has it changed the way that we uh, think about historical spaces? Yes, I mean, obviously something like a, a, an aerodrome takes up a huge amount of space on the ground, as you like, as well as, as well as in the air, obviously. But I suppose, you know, it relates to industrial archaeology in a way, because what warrants being preserved, you know, in terms of various bits of industrial archaeology that have um, gone out of use. And I think it, you know, it, as I say, it definitely has heritage value and adds to the heritage value of Stonehenge in terms of its sort of more historic past. And the fact that we welcome so many visitors today from all around the world under normal circumstances circumstances of course and many of them are interested in um, the last hundred years as well as as Martin says the last millennia. Yes I think it's really interesting how um, this very short period of conflict led to the creation of this aerodrome and this flying school this training school which suddenly after the world after the world war was over it all disappeared and it just returned to that peaceful pastoral setting eventually i think that's really interesting we see that a lot in films don't we of first world war films of the violence of war but and yet all, all the soldiers are sitting underneath trees and resting in sunshine and, and these sorts of images it's, it's quite interesting that yes, yeah one of the things that comes through from accounts of pilots and observers who trained at stonehenge is the boredom factor yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's mentioned several times by several uh, of the people who attended it <laughs> Lastly, though, are any of you surprised that Stonehenge survived this period at all? We're talking about a, ru- a ruined monument, uh, which appears, I think, to Im- have emerged unscathed from the nearness of this uh, yeah. Stonehenge aerodrome. <laughs> well, I must admit, I, I've often wondered how it survived, you know, not just the First World War, but many things uh, since it was erected. It is quite amazing. I mean, part of the answer to that must be the sheer size of the stones, I would think. They're not the sort of things you can incorporate into a, a stone wall or farmers would want for anything around their farmyards or whatever. But um, yes, I mean, obviously it was a very difficult time. But as I mentioned earlier, the parallel story is that up till 1915, it was owned by Sir Edmund Antrobus, so part of the Antrobus estate. And he was very interested himself, including erecting a stone or re-erecting a stone, rather. And then when Cecil Cecil Chubb took it on, he was quite benign. I think he probably realised that it probably wasn't as straightforward a thing to own as he he might have thought when he bought it. And some of the stones were propped up by wooden poles at the time, for example. And I think the First World War marked such a change in life in general, didn't it? And uh, things changed quite a bit. But there are lots of examples, actually, and particularly in the Second World War, I think, (coughs) where military actually do respect monuments and historic sites as much as they can, even when they're in a war zone. So, yes, it's very good that uh, they didn't use it for bombing practice and they didn't knock it down. (laughs) And Martin, what are your thoughts? Surprised that Stonehenge lasted through this period? No, no, not at all. No, it's never seriously under threat during the the life of the aerodrome. And also, as I said, you know, the military had a close eye being kept on them by all manner of people. In fact, a number of the people who tipped off the Office of Works and others about military damage to sites on Salisbury Plain actually came from serving soldiers and airmen themselves. So <laughs> it's very unlikely anything would have happened. And, and also the First World War stories are sort of part of a pattern of stories about Stonehenge during the late 19th and early 20th century that always seem to present the site as being 
under threat. You know, you've got stories about landowners being neglectful or about the fact that you could hire a hammer to chisel bits off the stone to take away as souvenirs and so on. And the the one thing those stories all have in common is that none of them are actually true. So Stonehenge was being very carefully looked after uh, throughout this entire period. So no, I'm, I'm not surprised that it, it, it survived at all. And thankfully, it still is there today for us all to enjoy. Thank you very much for talking to us about this really interesting chapter in the Stonehenge story. And really thank you for your time, both of you, Heather and Martin. Thank you. Thank you. You've been listening to the English Heritage Podcast. Next week, as we approach St. George's Day, we're investigating the origins of dragon myths. The first time we hear about dragons at all in a, an English or a British context is in the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle entry for the year 793, when we're told that dragons were seen flying over the island of Lindisfarne, Holy Island. Thanks for listening. See you next time.